0: Hey, this is Ross Payton with Ludo Narrative Dissidents, episode one, our first official episode of the season, uh, since the, our Kickstarter was successful. If you're listening to this, you're probably a backer of the Kickstarter. Thank you so much uh, for backing it. Uh, it means a lot to us. And of course, uh, we are quite happy to start diving into these games and, uh, this is our first
1: don't assume they're backers. It could just be John Harper.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, if this is John Harper, uh, uh, hello and uh thank you for producing such a lovely game i had a great time playing it, at least personally um i cannot speak for craig and james in that regard Uh, but yeah so the poll for our first episode was uh blaze in the dark one with 20 votes out of 170 cast so uh thank you for that uh thank you for so many responses After we finish recording this episode sometime, I'll put out the poll for episode two so we can start prepping for that episode. Uh, We do have a backer curated episode we are preparing for uh, as well. The game we're going to be covering, uh, that will be a bit of a surprise. So that will be probably the next episode we record. But let's enough about that let's talk about blades in the dark blades in the dark is uh its own system which was derived from powered by the apocalypse but has since become uh, known as the forged in the dark system and it is a as it says on the back of the book it is a tabletop role-playing game about a crew of daring scoundrels seeking their fortunes in the haunted streets of an industrial fantasy city so uh probably the for me the existing setting that sort of most evokes *Blade in the Dark* is the *Dishonored* video game series. Uh, I'm sure Greg and James will pull up their own examples, but uh, so if you think if you're familiar with Dishonored, you can sort of think of that. Although in this Blades in the Dark*, there's literally no no sky there or there's no sun. Uh, the, the sun has been put out; it is always night, and yet people persist in this fantasy sort of fantasy slash steampunk world. Uh, and you're all a group of criminals pulling scores uh, to get ahead. And uh, so we'll get into the – and so that is the the campaign mechanism of being a group of thieves, a group of criminals, pulling different heists or scores or jobs in order to fulfill your agendas and also make enough coin to uh, bribe the the blue coats and survive another day. Uh, so, uh, I, of course, have run a 24-session campaign of Blades in the Dark, which uh, is currently being uh, put on RPPR Actual Play, the podcast, so you can take a listen to that. Uh, but yeah, that is, before we get into mechanics or anything specific, that's sort of the the, the outline. So, of course, I quite like this system, otherwise I wouldn't have run a campaign, it. No, no, but uh, we should first talk about what does the game do? So, Greg! what does blades in the dark do
1: so i have not played blades in the dark but have run it and a sort of examined it in a uh, a critic from a critical perspective and it seems to me that what blades wants to do is one it wants to reduce gm prep which i absolutely mm-hmm. understand that's a laudable goal As gaming's demographic ages, or alternately as gaming pulls in people who are young and have short attention spans because they grew up with the internet, the idea of luxuriously sitting back at your desk and spending hours typing up notes for your campaign (laughs) becomes increasingly quaint. Am I right? Uh, So... GM prep was traditionally this, this huge production where you were making maps and, uh, writing up the elaborate backstories of every GMC and, and it's fun and people love it, but not, it's not fun for everybody and not all people love it. So, you know, if you're, if you're one of those people who loves the uh, the nerdery of drawing a picture of every character who's going to show up in your game, God bless you. But there are other ways to do it, and Blades in the Dark wants to be one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in that spirit of reducing toil, it also wants to reduce wheel spinning. Uh, I don't know... I don't know if our younger listeners are familiar with a famous internet video about Leroy Jenkins. (laughs) Uh, If you haven't seen it, uh, you know, go look at it. It's people planning an online video game raid ad nauseum until one player... Just snaps and runs into the room before they're all buffed and ready, screaming and hacking. And that is, that's a thing that happens. People get bogged down. They're like, okay, we're outside the Aboleth's lair and we're going to play. Okay, so the cleric's going to cast this. And that lasts for, you know, that spell lasts for five minutes. All right. Right before we need to cast them in this order because, okay, and then, uh, you know, the thief is going to – and and you can get lost in the weeds and just plan and plan and plan endlessly. And it is possible to bog down very badly doing this. And so Blades in the Dark's answer to this is when you say, okay, we're going to rob a bank – the GM says, all right, sounds like you're robbing a bank. As you kick in the door, blah, 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 blah. And there is a lot of rules mm-hmm. structure framed around making it possible to do that, which I'll, I'll cover in a little bit. But uh, So that's the second thing it wants to do, is it does not want you to create a master plan like in the movie Heat or in some other heist film. It wants to evoke that as play progresses
0: Mm -hmm. Um, yeah I'd agree with that
1: so oh and another thing that I saw that I'm like ah, you know me me and the author agree on this is radical derailroading the setting by giving different groups or factions their own character sheets and again Mm -hmm. if you come up with games from the 90s There's a lot of, oh, well, you know, there are all these these factions like Vampire the Masquerade is maybe an archetypal example where there are all these different vampire clans and political organizations and they all doing stuff. And the choices of these the machinations of these groups are always left to the storyteller uh, by and large. And so I think that John in blades like me with rain, little, little self-promotion warning, <laughs> warning there. Uh, I, I really do want Ross to like splice in the noise of a klaxon and someone yelling self-promotion alert, self-promotion <laughs> alert. Cause I'm going to do it a lot. Just brace yourself for that. But in vampire, the masquerade, It was just up to the GM to, okay, so what are the Camarilla doing? And what are the Malkavians specifically doing? And what are the Von True doing? And and this, instead of having that all be on the GM's head, is it's abstracted into mechanics. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know, the mechanics will tell you what they're doing or how soon they're going to do it. And the interaction with the player's dice roll, this is very... Player facing only the players touch dice. Mm-hmm. The GM just grinds through the rules. So, uh, I I approve of having the character sheet for the faction. Um,
0: uh, there are a couple times the GM rolls for dice, but that's for entanglements yeah. in between jobs. That's very minor. Um, so yeah, and players could roll. I mean, there's a d6 table. Like what what happens between the jobs? Uh, but I yeah,
1: stand correct. And I knew that from reading it. But
0: yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's very minor. It's not in the core of the action. It's it's a very, there's not yeah. a
1: lot of players yeah. dicing against the GM, yeah. which was the default going mm-hmm. back to D&D, which was very adversarial. There was this, this feeling, even if it wasn't literally the sense that, okay, I'm trying to get past the GM or the GM is trying to destroy us. Even if you knew that wasn't actually happening, emotionally, often that's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And the rules produced that sensation. And so when you won, in some ways, it felt like you'd put one over on your buddy, the Dungeon Master. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So yeah, that, that's all happening. I will point out <laughs> that what, what Blades in the Dark regards as... A terrible bug is, for many players, a a feature. And when I was talking about this with a a longtime gaming buddy, Tim Didopoulos, not to name drop, but I mentioned the idea of, oh, yeah, you just cut off all that debating and discussing and Mm -hmm. plotting and planning at the legs. He's like, that's my favorite part, though. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel you understand a character so well when you see what they're worried about and what what plans they suggest and what things they
2: dismiss as
1: unworkable or immoral. I'm doing a terrible version
2: of Tim's accent. I used to share an office with Tim. I'd put you at about 68% accurate there. <laughs> you can't see it because it's a
1: podcast, but I am pumping my fist in
2: triumph. <laughs> Admittedly, I've not seen Tim in about... Almost twenty years, but um, yeah,
1: he's living in Spain with his beautiful wife.
2: I know, and I am so envious. Um, <laughs> he's also, he's, I think, he's still one of the driving forces behind uh, Slay Industries.
1: I don't know. He, I, I, I don't. I know certainly, used much. to be. Well, yeah, I know he was always a huge fan and supporter. But again, we're we're drifting a little bit. So that is my yeah. my take on the three things that Blades wants to do. It wants to radically derailroad its game. It wants to reduce the GM's burden of planning. It wants to have the cool bits of an elaborately plotted heist without the dull bits of sitting around talking about the... they, They want the heist to be cool instead of mm-hmm. you talking for two hours about how it's going to be cool.
0: I would agree with that. Uh, having played it. Um, but yeah, uh, James, do you have, um, any further in terms of what the games does? Uh, yeah. would you agree with that assessment or is there anything you'd like I to think, add on that?
2: Yeah. I, th- I think, um, Greg is, is very much on the money. Um, I think, He's exactly right. Also, I think uh, planning sessions in RPGs can be an utter derail. The Mm -hmm. longest and most significant RPG session that I've ever been involved in, which was 84 hours without sleep, we took the Guinness World Record, uh, and we are in the 1987 Guinness World Record book for it, um, was derailed at the end by a three-hour planning session about how we were going to assault a demon's castle in hell, at the end of which I fell asleep bringing the record yep. attempt to an end um,
1: I have to feel that after 84 hours were you were you like seeing and hearing things Oh yeah
2: yeah we were hallucinating it yeah yes we were young.
1: D and D as it's meant to be played in the throes of visual and auditory hallucination.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and and well, in a future podcast, I think I feel we will come back to this record attempt because it's going to touch on the game that I think we're going to do later on, probably depending on how it, things pull
1: foreshadowing the sign of quality (laughs) substantive literature Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. well this is i was going to come on to foreshadowing in fact because i think what blades wants to do is it wants to have its cake and eat it it wants to be an episodic game based on a, a tv series and they talk explicitly about episodes and screen time and seasons and season finales and things like that and at the same time they want to do this very freewheeling zero prep almost improvisational very little there's an awful lot of structure but in terms of creating not just the ongoing narrative but the story arc there's very little support for that um i think it's trying to do both and i don't feel that it necessarily succeeds um it is it's very structured there's an awful lot of, of rules in there as you say derived from the apocalypse world stuff Mm-hmm. It claims to be fiction forward. I'll, I'll come on to that all fiction first. Um, and yet, it's a 330-page 300, rule book. I think. And the first section is The Mechanics. And then you do character generation. Um, and then there's GM advice. And and finally, you get to a, a section that goes, I think it's the start of the GM advice, by which you're more than halfway through the book. Having plowed through over 100 pages of pure mechanics, it goes... This game's fiction first. It's all about the storytelling. And I burst out laughing because most of my notes up to that point were, oh, my God, this is just, this is, you know, people discussing dice rolls or how they're going to modify dice rolls. Um, They've got a very limited vocabulary of of actions. I think you get, is it 12 or 16 skills, abilities? I forget the exact word. Things you can do, and almost everything has to be done in, in terms of them or couched in those terms.
0: Well, there are twelve actions, which are the what they call attributes, action ratings. And so everything you do has to be assessed from one of those actions. So- but it
1: sounds like you know, a normal D D role is very can be very straightforward. It's like, okay, I rolled a hit, and if I hit, I do damage. Whereas these rolls are much more and, and you will have, you know, tons and tons and tons of to hit and damage rolls in the course of a session, because you are simulating every blow of your broadsword. Whereas this is, instead of a series of very broken-down, simple rolls, we're just going to do one roll, but it is going to be a little more involved and negotiated, and we are going to be really clear on how it's happening, why it's happening, what the outcomes at risk are and what the
2: risks absolutely you understand the possible negatives you understand as the game is written how it could go wrong and what will happen if it goes wrong which Uh, is which is great so that you you can't essentially you can't rewind time to make something go go right but you understand the the potential peril and so there's there's a huge impetus to make sure, and as you say, negotiate and make sure that things do go well.
1: Or alternately, there seems to be an immense stress on, it's like, okay, things are going to go wrong. And that's great because wrong is interesting. We are going to give you a ton of tools to mitigate the wrongness. So anytime it's like, oh, yeah. Uh, This gangster is going to put a pistol ball right between your eyes. It is going to pierce the front of your skull, but not quite have enough energy to go out the back. So it's just going to ricochet inside until your brain is emulsified. And you can say, no, 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 no. I'm going to take two stress in order to downgrade that brain emulsifying damage to just, it grazes my temple and I'm knocked out.
0: Mhm. Um I will say uh when running the game uh because uh the game has three uh positions of risk like how de- how how difficult is the thing trying to do um desperate risky or controlled uh right. you know your character's position. Uh many times uh, when I was running the game a player would be thinking about trying to do something like take out a guard and I would offer them you can set the risk level um like if you control you can you can draw the guard away and be in a better position to try something later and if you fail then nothing happens if you risky you could just take him out desperate you can take him out and take out the one down the down the alley around the corner but obviously the consequences of failing a risky or a desperate roll are that much higher so that actually it provides a, a very high degree of granular control uh by the gm and the player to sort of like um let them determine how how much risk they want to take in any given role
2: yes and and i, I understand that completely and i will say i haven't played it i have read it mm-hmm. i've tried to read it a couple of times in the past bounced off it on both occasions largely because i mechanics bore me deep you know huge oh. chunks of mechanics bore me
1: wow are you in the wow are you in the <laughs> wrong business yeah. james
2: it's I mean good good mechanics, interesting mechanics, well-written mechanics, well-structured mechanics. I I was reading an interview with Tom Dusenberg, who used to be Hasbro's head of inventor relations, and he says he looks for the double wow whenever he's pitched a product. The first wow is the easy wow. Um, and Blades in the Dark gets a lot of that. It's you know, you you can be Peaky Blinders, you can be the character, you can be the lies of the characters from the, the lies of Locke Lamora. Great, I mean wow. He waits for the second WoW, and it took me a long time to get to the second WoW in, in Blades in the Dark. Um, I do think, having read the whole thing, it coheres, it comes together. Um, but, and as I say, I don't actually have play experience of it. I have played other games by the same designer. I played a terrific campaign just last year, last, last summer. Has it been a year since last summer? feels like it's been about four months. It's...
1: James, by definition, it has been a year since last summer.
2: <laughs> yes, I know, but it doesn't... F- ob- objectively, objectively, it's been a year, according to these calendars. But anyway, um, played Lady Blackbird.
1: Way back in the past, when we were young, last summer.
2: Yes. Um, in my salad days, played a fantastic Lady Bird, Blackbird campaign. Huge fun really just great role-playing, just letting the system take the strain. And I was expecting something as as deft and agile as thieves leaping from rooftop to rooftop. And instead, what I got was a lot of very densely explained mechanics, um, which put together by a GM who knows what they're doing, I think will create the the desired effect. But I don't feel this is a well-written or well-written well-explained game. I don't think the, the rule book, which is my primary point of experience with it, is particularly well put together, which is okay. to say I would have done it differently.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, perhaps that's a good segue into uh, our second segment, which it. is how it does it. Well, uh, yeah. If we're complaining, about, I warned, before we recorded this, I
1: warned uh, Ross and James, that I might rant about the future conditional tense. And I'm sure many of my listeners are going to be like, what is this English major ding dong on about? (laughs) But let me tell you a story about when I was freelancing for White Wolf, and I used the future conditional tense, which comes up a lot in game design in the sense of, If you go into this room, the orc will attack you. This is the most obvious way to write things. And I wrote some stuff in this sort of uh, phrasing. And Justin Achilles sent me an email saying, Greg, if you continue to overuse the word will, I will take a train to where you are with an aluminum baseball bat and some skinheads, and I will tune you up. And this was... I feel like, and once he had shown me how phrasing things in the present conditional instead of the future conditional is stronger and shorter and reads easier, now I can't stop seeing it. And every time I see will or apostrophe LL in any text, it's like getting poked in the eye. Uh, Let me find an example of which there are many, many, many. Uh, Let me see if I can find a paragraph that has, like, three or four of them. Um, Okay, page seven. The most common result is four slash five partial success. This means that your character will tend to succeed, but at a cost. You'll rarely get away clean. And, you know, okay, in isolation, that sounds fine. But how much better does... This means your character tends to succeed, but at a cost. You rarely get away clean. You've just removed two words from a sentence, and that adds up over the course of a 300-page book. And the future conditional sounds wishy-washy, and it's longer and more complicated. And I just wish that every single game designer in the world, before submitting... Uh, a, a manuscript would do a global search for will and for apostrophe LL and would rephrase 90% of their uses because it would make game books cleaner and simpler. This was my biggest problem with spirit of the century when I read it way back when is that so much of it was future conditional and every time I hit one, it was like a pebble in my shoe. And it just made me stumble and took me out of the moment of reading into a moment of my interior editor pushing my glasses up my nose and saying, well, actually, the way you should do that is like this. So if you want to write games that don't result in me frothing at the mouth and ranting like this, do not use the future conditional tense. Thank you.
2: Okay. Can do I us. do five minutes on column balancing now? <laughs> I, I I I won't. I'll do I'll do twenty seconds. Um, I'm I'm a layout geek. I'm a, a, a typographer by uh, yes training. Um, and there are certain things in book layout that, in the same way as Will will jump off the page and strangle Greg, Will jumps off the page and strangles Greg around the throat. Um, there are certain things like. Not um, not balancing your paragraphs properly using kerning and letter spacing to make text fit. Don't do that. Turn your bloody hyphens on instead. Um, and if you've got two columns on a page, the bottoms of the columns should align. And it is not hard. But Blades in the Dark does... Well, it, its columns don't align for the most part. And it does use bad text spacing. And if you've got an eye for these things... They leap off the page every single time. And it's very much a mark of somebody who is, I think, quite often self-taught in terms of, I'm I'm not saying a bad writer, I may well have an English degree, but I trained both as a proofreader and as a layout designer. And these things just glare off, off the page. Um, but at the same time role playing it's it's a tiny industry. You can't assume that people have the budget necessarily for an editor for a proper layout person. They may well have just picked up these skills themselves and be doing a very adequate job. I think first edition the vampire the columns are all over the shop and it's you know clearly it didn't hurt that but um, yeah, there's a bunch of layout and, designers out there who still curse its name
1: we're we're just we are. The old men riding off on our private hobby horses, but it's so relatively easy to fix. And, you know, at this point, what, 20% of the people in the industry have worked for White Wolf or its descendants and been threatened with aluminum baseball bats for this. So, you know, a lot of people, you'd be surprised how many people are sensitive about it. As soon as I described this uh, in another context to a, a fellow White Wolf alumnus, their very first reaction, I kid you not, was just an Achilles would go nuts. <laughs> so, nobody
0: wants that. <laughs> um, I will say, in defense of the layout, though, I do like how um, game terms are consistently bolded uh, to make them easier to spot on the page, uh, so... It was easier to scan a book for like it was easy to scan this book to find uh, key terms and rules when necessary. Um, also, the the uh, um, adding the chapter titles on the uh, the gutter of the pages, the outside margins, mm-hmm. uh, not the gutters, the, the outside margins. Um, so you could you know find chapter five NPCs and you know uh, uh, you know or downtime activities and vice and that kind of thing.
2: Most, most of the layout is is exemplary. The use of the, the fonts, the line lengths, the margins. It's really nice. It's a very clean design. It doesn't interrupt the text with artwork, which is one of my great bugbears. We are not in the early 80s anymore. Um, you know, it's A lot of role-playing games do look very adolescent. They look like they were designed for young youngish teens um, it's a very splashy layout that was great when quark Express was new but we can do something that the vast majority of players and purchasers are much more grown up we can do a more grown up layout now and blades for the most part looks like a grown up book it is very nicely put together it's just it's a shame that there are these little flaws
1: uh, well we're we're clearly looking for nits to pick um mm. for the most part i I did not find the rules as difficult to, as opaque as James maybe did. Um, well, are we moving on to how it, do, how yeah, it does Yeah, yeah, we, we've are, moved on or to how are it does go, it. Or are we going to dissect the uh, the flaws and virtues of the indexing? Um,
0: I think we can focus on the core mechanics, perhaps. <laughs> I
1: don't think we really have an index nerd on the team here. Who's who's a real who has really powerful opinions about indexes and will I mean, like bite yeah. you over over a bad index.
0: I mean, I know I, some people, but I don't. Not, yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely, I'm definitely not. Um, yeah. So um, I will You're say for the. Live Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. I, I, I have no place to, I mean, when we get to base raiders, that'll be hoof. Um, but the, so for the core mechanics, I will say that the difference between this and powered by the apocalypse is powered by the apocalypse uses 2d6 looking for, uh, you know, one through six are failures, seven through nines are complications and 10 and above are full successes. In this, you roll a pool of d6s, at least, um, if, you're, if you wouldn't be normally below one die because of penalties, you would roll two dice and take the worst of the two. Um, but uh, otherwise, you roll a pool of D6s and you look for the single highest number. One through three is a failure, four through five is a complication, and the six is an outright success. Um, now, there is a stress resource that every player has uh, that they can burn to gain various advantages. And one of the most common ways to do that is to assist another player. Spend a point of stress and give that other player an extra D six in their pool because that was the central thing. It would, it's basically impossible to roll. It's very, very rare to roll more than five D six and five D six was, uh, sort of the upper limit and there was no sort of re roll mechanic. Um, and there's no
1: addition. It's all just pick the highest single die,
0: the highest single die. Yeah. I
1: can see how that is really optimizes handling time it's mm-hmm. you are not gonna be picking through your dice and adding this and subtracting that and trying a whole number there
0: there there was a bit of subtraction there could be these things called mm-hmm. resistance rolls where you would take a certain number of stress equal to like seven minus a d6 roll uh or six minus your d6 roll okay. i believe so
1: um a little basic single digits
0: yeah yeah thing. so six minus whatever you rolled um yeah, so yeah that's yeah
1: that's nice, because mm-hmm. the invisible the invisible flaw of a lot of systems is handling time, right? Mm-hmm. Is that it seems very intuitive that, oh, you know, well, I roll one die if I'm a normal person, and two die if I'm great, and because my character is a demigod, I get to roll 15 dice! Mm-hmm. And then you're stuck sorting 15 dice. Yeah,
0: this is not exactly exalted, um, sure. or, yeah. Uh, so it does I, have that. I, I was,
1: I was, I wasn't gonna name names, Ross. Damn.
0: I could have said Shadowrun too. Like, <laughs> I mean, there, there's multiple offenders in that category. Well, um, I mean, one, yeah.
1: one roll engine, you can roll up to ten dice, but I feel like they add things. That mm-hmm. uh, here, here's the, um, here's the self promotion warning again. <laughs> but that I feel that because it's got multiple dimensions of meaning and information coming out of it it's Mm -hmm. okay i i give myself a pass but yeah i do appreciate that you know okay you are never gonna deal with a number much higher than seven because some people want to play games and aren't good at math so yay on the design for that Mm -hmm. um all right. Let me. Should I consult my notes on how it does it?
0: Well, um, James, do you do you have any uh, uh, thoughts on the core mechanics? I guess
2: um, the mechanics. I mean they they read fine. I I do like this system. I there are so many games you read and you just go. This is you've come up with a new dice mechanic for the sake of coming up with a new dice mechanic. But this one feels like it fits. It feels that it is fast and intuitive, um, and and very easy to spot if you succeeded or. or Failed, which is kind of in keeping with the the genre. Um, it's it's not something where things are unclear for, long, you know, typically. Um,
1: if you're jumping between buildings, there's not a lot of ambiguity about whether you got there or not.
2: Yes, or, or cracking a safe or, or whatever it is, or taming a ghost, because it is this, this kind of this slightly eldritch dieselpunk city. Um which um is interesting because I've, I felt um it's it is it feels very tied to its setting, um and yet a lot of the setting elements or the more outre setting elements are not brought in until the last third of the book it it
1: well there are there are indications there are gestures mm-hmm. at them, but not yeah. the traditional RPG. Okay, so this is exactly how busting a spirit to harness works and these are the people who do it and this is what their shoes look like and this is how they talk to each other. Yeah, there is a tremendous latitude Mm -hmm. for personalizing the details in Blades in the Dark. And again, if that's what you're into, you'll be into it. And if you want to be told what sort of shoes a spirit taber wa- wears, you won't like this. And especially since a lot of the details are expected to be produced in the situation. Um, I feel like, okay, can I, can I do another little, little side thing based on my notes? Sure. All right. So there is this idea in writing about pantsers versus plotters. And a plotter is someone who writes an outline and knows what the climax is going to be even before setting the first word on paper. This is the archetypal, controlled, I'm going to figure out consciously the flow of my story before I begin it. So that's way off on one end of the continuum. And the other end of the continuum is the pantser, as in flying by the seat of my pants. And Mm -hmm. pantsers say, oh, I'm just gonna come up with this cool character and start writing about what he does, blah, blah 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 blah. And I am writing experimentally to discover what happens when I take this cool character I thought of and throw him into a weird situation that amuses me. And Often at the end, when the book is complete, you cannot tell how it was produced. Mm-hmm. But if you are a plotter and you discover a flaw in your outline, you will get stuck. And if you are a pantser, every now and then you will wind up in a blind corner. And you're like, I don't know what my character does here. I don't know what happens next. And you just spin your wheels. So that is, those are, that's sort of the ends of a a creative continuum Mm -hmm. in my mind. If you read about how Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote Kubla Khan, he is clearly a pantser. Someone Mm -hmm. who is so immersed in poetry that he could literally write it in his sleep. But once the trance was broken, he could not recall what he had created. If you read how Poe created the raven, he's clearly a plotter who's like, starts with the question, what kind of poem will be most commercially viable? Well, obviously, it's about a beautiful woman who dies too young, because everyone digs that shit. And then he goes on through every little conscious step of his decisions in writing The Raven. Uh, And so I feel like Blades in the Dark is pretty firmly anti-plotter. If you're someone who wants to write up a bunch of things that might happen if your players do X, this is not the system for you. Everything that usually gets plotted, the rules are trying to do instead with expectations that when you get to a point where you need creativity, the GM is just going to pull something out of their ass. The GM is just going to be spontaneous and creative. And if you are capable of being spontaneous and creative in the middle of a game session, this is great. This is going to be a terrific force multiplier for you. But if you are a person who gets under pressure when it's like, okay what is this, per- how is how is this GMC going to respond to this completely unexpected development and you just sit there and gop like a caught fish with your mouth going this is not the game for you, it is not gonna, it tries to help you, but if you can't be quick on the draw with a creative detail, your game is not gonna be as rich as I think the text wants it to be.
2: I agree 100%. Mm. Um, And it it does give some assistance. There's loads and loads of tables at the back, and I'm a great fan of tables, and I've worked with Grant Howitt, who I don't know if we're going to be covering his game Spire later on in this series. I hope so. But he is brilliant at using tables and giving to the GM and often the players tables to just help them come up with Ways of being spontaneous—they are props almost for improvisation. Blades doesn't do that, and I really wanted it to. Um, I did. I had these nightmare visions of, of GMs just kind of being left slightly adrift.
1: Um, what I think this is this is into our uh, phase of how it does what it's trying to do. I feel that Blades is a noble attempt at automating creativity and mm. which I, I dig I'm into it I'm like yes it is possible to take things that normally would be the, the purview of an artist being inspired and make them the outcome of a process of an autonomous structure I mean you can't completely do it but you can write something that makes it much much easier to do your wild ass pulls or have them occur with it as long as they occur within the structure that you've predicted. This is a little bit okay again self promotion. This is a little bit where I'm going with Dueling Fops of Vindemir, which is GMless. I want things to be procedurally generated. And, you know, if you run it 20 times, yeah, you'll you'll twig to the procedure. But how many people are going to run it until they have, you know, broken the code? I think most people are going to play it and then wait long enough that they forget about it and then play it again. And similarly, this, I think, gives you a lot of structural support where there's like, okay, if you are a GM... Here is the obvious thing to do next, or the rules very much want there to be an obvious thing to do next to prevent you from having to hand wave, shuck and jive, and just, you know, basically sort of fiat an outcome. They want the outcomes to arise from the mechanics, mm-hmm. not from the GM putting his thumb on the scale or their thumb on the scale.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of mechanics about what ha- consequences there. Like I said, there's a whole entanglement mechanic uh, that happens between scores that and there's also faction um, hate allied. You know how much of given factions like or dislike your, your group? Uh, to generate allies and antagonists, so um, there is a lot of mechanics to support. Like once your crew gets rolling, uh, you you develop enemies and allies, and like they they'll start to react to you. Um, so that is that is definitely in, in be
2: there. Um, perhaps we
0: should move on to the third part of it, which is how people play.
2: It. I I would Sorry. very much like to jump in here. I had a thing that followed on from from what Greg was, oh, was sure. saying. Oh, yeah. Um, You have to remember, I'm six hours ahead of you. It's it's literally midnight here. Um, uh, My reactions are are slower than they ought to be. Also, I'm old. Um, What was I going to say? Yeah, a lot of the mechanics, a lot of the structure, a lot of the rules are there not just to structure the way that the fiction comes together, to do that, but to do it in a way that is explicitly the way that heist movies work and this kind of fiction. And it references Peaky Blinders an awful lot and Peaky Blinders is exactly the kind of, you're building a gang the gang is taking over territories episodic TV, each episode is kind of a self-contained story but at mm-hmm. the same time adds to the overall story arc and then there's okay. a big builds to a big end of season finale where usually people die Peaky Blinders is is brilliant interesting, there is a Peaky Blinders RPG, I don't know if it's out in English yet, it's it's called um, I've only seen the French one, it's called Peaky Blinders uh, Jus de Role it's basically Coup. It's a social deduction game. Um, but when you're dealing with actual characters instead of archetypes, it becomes very different. It takes on a, another dimension, another life. That's kind of a footnote, really. But, I mean, the, the one mechanic that everyone talks about when they're talking about Blade um, uh, in the Dark is the flashback mechanic during the heist. Specifically the heist, specifically the scores where you're doing the... You know, it's the heart of Owning It's the height of the Ocean's Eleven movies and all the rest of those, the bit where you're actually doing the break-in. And this mechanic where you can, you hit a, a hard point and you can go, oh, but before this, in the plans that we didn't run through because planning in RPGs is boring, I set up this thing, you know, a few hours ago, a few days ago, I, you know... And that's, that's lovely. And that is, uh, that's straight out of Soderbergh. That's straight out of, of any of these, you know, these rollicking. It seems like the cops
1: are here to bust us. But actually, after I robbed the police laundry, these are our gang dressed up as cops here to help us carry out all the heavy, heavy
2: money. Yeah, and this is a brilliant piece where it, of the game actually being fiction first, and it works really, really well. And I wanted a lot more of that. I wanted a lot more of that kind of thing.
1: A slap in the face to my most vicious enemy, linear time. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's. I was. I was looking for the mechanics where I could foreshadow stuff, where I could do callbacks to things that have happened in previous sessions, and those are not defined within the game, or if they are, then I missed them. Um, because that's the kind of stuff that does require the GM to do some preparation and to do some work. And They've got the notes. They've got these things in front of them. They've got the the extra character sheets. They've got the um, uh, progress wheels, uh, which are uh, another. Sorry.
1: I think the way that the rules would suggest handling that is, okay, I want to prepare to do crime, and you say to the GM during downtime phase, I'm going to prepare to do crime. And the GM says, how are you preparing to do crime? And you're like, I just want to very vaguely make notes, watch, spend some money on things and people. And then if you you know want to set it up as vaguely as that, uh, you know, if I was the GM and someone had set something up as vaguely as that. Later on, when they're really in the soup, and they're like, ah, but this is the thing for which I prepared when I prepared to do crime, here is how, here's what the money bought me, here's what all this time watching showed me, and, you know, Blades in the Dark, it would be like, okay, roll for all the the observation you did, and spend your coin, and okay, yeah, now you have changed your outcome from a marginal success, uh, changed your scale from, uh, you know, des- or I, I can't remember what the, uh, the thing is, you know, you've, you've changed it from desperate to controlled because you spent all, you invested your efforts and your narrative authority into, I prepare to do crime. And now you re- you redeem it. you, receive the yield of your investment in, okay, yeah, uh I am willing to take this outcome that would be disastrous for you and make it into a mild inconvenience because you've explained how you how you prepared for it and you have spent the resources you invested. So I think it does that pretty well. I I, I like that flashback thing. The thing where you're like, oh foreshadowing so on it kind of does that with the downtime. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna prepare. Uh, the other thing that that I liked about the idea of downtime is it lets you set long term goals, and that gives players a lot of agency in a sandbox, which this definitely is. It's not just okay. I have to take whatever mission the GM tells me. Either I can tell the GM I want to do this mission where I burn down so-and-so's house. And they're like, really? You don't like so-and-so? He just annoys me. I'm burning his house down. Or you can set things up like objectives in Unknown Armies where it's like, I want to make this change. I want to encourage people to rise up and throw off the shackles of their oppressors. Or I want to encourage people to get high on this drug that only I can supply them with. And so... Blades offers you the chance to be not just moved and shaken, but the mover and the shaker. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, which is something that's a lot easier to handle. Uh, okay. Maybe, maybe I don't want to say that. I will throw this out to you experienced gentlemen. Is it easier to be a potent mover and shaker In a sandbox game, rather than a more railroady game.
0: Well, I I would say um, I think it's that's agnostic to whether it's sandbox or or uh, railroad slash you know I guess predetermined plot driven uh, because that it depends on what the GM (laughs) kind of wants or what will the GM (laughs) allow. If the GM wants you uh, to be
1: God damn it. You're going to well, be God. It
0: depends like how quickly the GM can improvise and respond, um, uh-huh. more than anything else. Um, and we're but
1: pancers versus plotters.
0: Yeah, basically. Um, I, I, uh, I, I do kind of want to move into how people play it. Um, yes, which, so yeah, that's your area. My, my, my ex, uh, experience with Blade in the dark, I would actually compare it in terms of like to compare it to say using D and D is sort of like a common thing. Um, They're, you know, talking about pantsing versus plotting. Plotting would be something like uh, the Tolless campaign setting for Monty Cook, which is a 700-page book uh, describing every building in a city or the invincible uh, um, city-state.
1: Invincible overlord. Yeah,
0: yeah. Where everything is meticulously detailed down to the building. Um, That's That would be the plot-driven thing, but, like, Blades is much more like... um, uh, keep on the Wilderlands or uh, something like uh, or the Borderlands, yeah, Borderlands uh, where it's a hex crawl sort of like, here is instead of a uh, wilderness though, it's a city and the city, here are the city, here are the factions in it now you determine everything else so it's more of that blank slate slash toolkit where here is the bare bones of a setting there's a lot of blank spaces for you to fill in and which is what I did um, when I ran it and Uh, So my experience in playing in terms of like the players really loved um, the flashback mechanic because we're also uh, veterans of the gumshoe system. And Mm -hmm. it reminded me a lot of the preparedness mechanic and a lot of this related mechanics, like you would see in Knights black agent where players could like figure out what to do in a heist, but they didn't have to like, again, plan it. Um, And, so we would uh, – I mean, we didn't – I didn't have a plot until, like, we were six or eight sessions in. The players were like, is there a plot to this? I was like, oh, shit. I should come up with a plot. Uh, <laughs> so I came up with an over-archage. No. Yeah. No, no. It was all along. So I had an overall <laughs> plot to it, but it was responsive to the players. And it was like, well, do you side with these people or these people? And they each have an agenda. Well, they have the agenda. They tell you they each have a secret agenda that you can try and figure out. Shitty. Or do you just want to play them against each other and uh, 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 do your own thing and try and screw both of these other factions over? And yeah, I'm
1: picturing you frantically waving your hands and blowing smoke. No, of course this was planned all along. Well, I mean to be honest, our blazon my trap.
0: The thing is most, most ga- campaigns I run, I would do a lot of planning or at least have an idea of what I the, want the story. Is. Blades in the Dark started because it was the pandemic. we were all sitting at home. And I was like, hey, Caleb, uh, what do you want to play? He's like, oh, Blades in the Dark. All right. Hey, who else wants to play Blades in the Dark? All right. Let's do a weekly Blades in the Dark game. And I just kind of threw it together. Uh, so um, I will say uh, that, you know, the score and the mechanics, we all love that. That was a lot of fun um downtime it was actually you guys haven't mentioned the downtime that dominated uh our group which was vice because that stress <laughs> stre- <laughs> like it's a game blazer says it's a game about uh planning scores but it's really a game about stress management it's about not getting burned out at work <laughs> um and
1: <laughs> oh i bet caleb loved that like a yeah. big double handful of strategy. so
0: there was That was the ongoing conversation was how to manage stress versus, like, getting dice pools large enough to succeed or at least get partial successes. Uh, And then dealing with traumas. Borrow.
1: Mm -hmm. You can always take take out a loan Mm -hmm. with stress and be like, okay, I will happily mortgage tomorrow to get a little... A little better poke. Well, today. it was like
0: loaning out stress to to aid others to give them that bonus die because the bonus die was really important and really and that was the best value. One stress to get one bonus die on someone else's roll that was that was a value. I'd uh, be but a then,
1: cool not to stress out over this.
0: Well, well to help my buddy to succeed because I want we all want to succeed. Oh. Uh, and then using stress to use various um, playbook abilities uh, because those were unique abilities that could do things no one else could do um and all
1: stress fueled
0: not That's all cool. of them some of them would use special armor uh which is a thing uh oh that was the other thing we haven't even mentioned out loadout which is also preparedness um and loadout was quite useful uh and really cool as a mechanic uh i will say though the where the mechanics kind of failed in terms of our playing especially as the campaign drew on is the gang turf management stuff which yeah. part it was more abstract and to be honest i kind of didn't pay much. that That does require some GM time to, like, learn and figure it, manage, and to keep, do bookkeeping to keep track of that, and I did kind of fall apart, especially towards the end. I kind of hand-waved it, uh, it towards the from end. It felt the rules
2: very oh, much oh, like oh, a simulation yeah. system. It was, it was almost a board game rather than a, something that you would do with the role-playing. It's resource management. Mm-hmm. But, like, stress resource management was very popular and very easy to keep track
0: of, but the gang turf stuff was not. So, hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And see, I, na- I wouldn't have called that just from looking at the text.
2: Yeah. Um. I think I, I would. Just Whereas Vices, which from the text are really dry and do feel like a kind of resource management... Uh, thing almost you know you need a vice because that's how you get your stress back and it's, oh yes I'll go off and indulge my vice I can see exactly how any, any experienced group is just going to treat this like catnip and really go all in on it and you know talking about their dark side because Up to that point, an awful lot of the stuff in the game is much more Ocean's Eleven than Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders is very, for those who haven't seen it, there's a lot of violence, a lot of blood, a lot of people die. Ocean's Eleven is happy, clappy, modern-day Vegas. Let's all rob some casinos and nobody gets hurt. And then the vices come in, and I can really see people who enjoy role-playing just going all in on that but the book does not cover that in very much depth the the section on vices yeah. is it's like two or three pages there's almost nothing there and i felt that was a just in terms of exploring a little bit more of depth and character depth and how to yeah. bold big out your character and make them much more of a personality it was a missed opportunity
0: um well i mean i don't i mean we didn't re- we didn't need that uh because it, they became like regular vignettes for for players to show what their characters were doing um you know one player was taught talk- and everyone enjoyed talking about how they indulge in their vice They're like oh here's the kind of mad i'm the tinker of the group i'm the the you know artificer so here's the kind of the mad science stuff i'm getting up to in the meantime it's to uh one player who's playing a brute uh, said, well, my character is this massive, hulky man. He just goes to a, uh, a brothel and plays chess with the uh, prostitutes, and they feel safe around him, and he, and he feels welcome there. So um, he's this Aww. massive scab. Co- his face is covered in scabs and scars, but, like, he feels safe. That he feels he relaxes there. And, yeah, uh, by playing chess. And um, that was the... Uh, so we didn't really need more mechanics. It was enough. Um, but stress is so important in the game that like, oh shit, we need to get stress back. So, uh, le- how do you do that? Oh, vices. Okay. Well, yeah, let's do vices again.
1: And so this is, is where you get your hammy scenery chewing, which mm-hmm. mm, I do love me some hammy scenery chewing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was a campaign thing. So like it is, um, very much a campaign focused game, uh, because, the vice downtime only comes up in between heists. Right. And um so it became a regular feature in our campaign because like there are a lot of times where sometimes you overindulge in vice because you roll too high and you recover like if you have five stress and you roll six, now you've overindulged and there's a complication. You maybe you picked a fight at the bar or I your did vice feel That was yeah.
1: pretty elegant. That was a nice piece of design.
0: mm mm-hmm. Or sometimes you didn't recover enough steps. You rolled a one, and now you're sitting at five stress. Do you use your second downtime to to recover more stress, or do you just, uh, or Must do you have to do
1: relax harder?
0: <laughs> so it was, um, there was a, there. So that became very interesting as the players all became aware of each other's stress. Like, oh, I'm stressed out. I can't, I, I can't take another trauma um so you, you'll have to deal with this um and because once you take four trauma once you max out on stress during a job you take a trauma when you take four traumas your character retires um or is retired uh depending on the circumstances and that became sort of the end game that became the biggest biggest challenge was keeping these very stri- characters you know from not getting too burned out um so this that sounds, was my this experience. Like it.
1: Delta Green, let's just keep you sufficiently functional, buddy, mm-hmm. happy, and sane. Let's start with sufficiently functional.
0: But on the other hand, when you get traumas, you get bonus experience points for <laughs> acting them out during games. So um, some of the traumas were like, I don't care if I my character dies or lives, um, or I forgot the term that they used for it. Thirteen, fourteen uh that i just found it on the index page um so the let's index see index is pretty good yeah so like reckless oh i think everyone every single player took reckless as a trauma at one point so everyone's like yeah no oh yeah fight a ghost on top of a burning building uh, or a dude possessed by a ghost on top of a burning building yeah okay why not uh oh fight a mob of people sure great uh, yeah it, they they everyone took that reckless so they get that b- bonus xp <laughs> Um. So that was an interesting way to meta game uh, as a game. Came. I
1: would take the trauma soft so fast. You lose your edge, become sentimental, passive, gentle. I'm like, yes, I want to do those scenes.
0: Oh yeah, no. Oh, uh, you see, you're you're in the car- uh, outer out of control carriage. Uh there's a kitten in the way of the the carriage <laughs> as you're barreling down the street. What do you do? I'll give Aww. you a bonus experience point if you save. If you if you throw yourself to save the kitten. <laughs> All right, level three harm. Go for it. Roll resistance to not have your rib cage collapsed. Yeah, <laughs> I um, broke
1: my jaw and have to eat only soup, but it was worth it because almost all the food in Duskball is mouse-based
0: so. or mushroom. Yeah,
1: mush mushroom slurry versus mushroom brick. It's all mushroom in the end.
0: Um, if anything, I ran the campaign a little too long, uh, because characters got a little too competent and got too many special abilities to Hmm. deal with things. Um, but I, so I think there's kind of a sweet spot of like six to 12 sessions or six to 18 sessions. Um, if you're running that for, for a campaign, um, yeah, 24, I felt was probably a little much, which is spoiler (laughs) alert. That's how many episodes the campaign is. I think I've mentioned interesting, but yeah, um, but yeah, if you have, do you have any questions about uh, how how it actually played out?
1: Well, okay, as a G- I mean, and you're a very experienced GM and system promiscuous, so you're all over whatever game mm-hmm. uh, is is looking good at the time. But did you feel that this was one that gave you a lot of support? Where you're like, okay, mm-hmm. if I'm a little if I'm a little confused and don't know what to do, the mechanics will give me. Uh, you know, w- are there for me?
0: Oh yeah, because that, everything boils down seems to an action. What it wants yeah.
1: to be is mm-hmm. you can. Al- you always know how to fall back on the dice and how to manage f- and and when you fall back on the dice, how to manage what they do.
0: The core of blades is giving players choices. Like, mm-hmm. do you want to suffer this consequence, or do you want to risk it? Uh, by rolling dice and seeing if you can get a better result or, you know, do you accept this? Do you and take so, the devil's bargain? Do you take the devil's bargain? That was very popular, too. Um, mm-hmm. But it, that's what it boils down to is, like, what what consequences are you willing to live with? Um, and what are you willing to risk? What are you willing to gamble to try and get a better outcome? Mm-hmm. And and so that felt very manageable. There's no NPC stats. Um, there There are, you know, except for, like, how much damage a type of weapon or or enemy can do in, in exchange. Um, so one as everything, I thought yeah. One mm-hmm. thing
1: that popped out at me, and I'm curious how this worked in in real reality. But the idea was that the way you measure how powerful a non-player character is is not you know a, a num a numerical score, but their agency that. Mm-hmm. A very, you know, a, an average character, a, an average GMC is stuck responding to what the player characters do. And a more powerful GMC is one who will sort of act at the same time as you or act on the same level as you. And the really, br- the real bruisers are the ones who have the narrative authority. To make you respond to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, in terms, there's nothing preventing you from saying NPC factions do this on their... Oh, actually, no, there, there are actually explicit mechanics for that. Because uh, there's the clock system, which we haven't even mentioned. And that's a fundamental thing to this. And um, it's straight out
1: of Apocalypse World. It's counting yeah.
0: clocks. Uh, but if you look in the back, there's this whole list of factions. And they have faction clocks. And so you, whatever factions are important to you, uh, for example, there's the city council, uh, faction clocks, strang, uh, Strangford is removed from count council or Strangford eliminates threats. Strangford is a member of the council. So, um, if you want to have a, a game involving the city council, the players are say, trying to help Strangford eliminate threats. Then they, when they do something good, you add to that clock. When something bad happens, then they add to the, uh, Strangford is removed from council. Um and so you can have these clocks ticking whenever the players take action or through their inaction
1: and I can't uh, help but notice that Strangford is removed from council as a six clock, and Strangford mm-hmm. eliminates threats as an eight clock, so it's a mm-hmm. little harder to do the it's a little harder to be his friend than his enemy
0: yeah uh, and then they have a little paragraph situation about um what uh what the, what's going on in the city council but it, it so it gives you enough to get started but then you fill in the the details so there is um, there is mechanical support for factions doing stuff on their own um and that kind of uh, allows you to have uh to create that more living environment you know where it's not just reacting to the players Um, But that that depends on how many clocks you want to keep track of as GM. Right. Um, So I mean, uh, it's
1: good that it's like, oh, if I'm a lazy GM and I want to keep things super focused because it's easy to only keep track of the np Mm -hmm. of the PCs and two other factions, you can do it that way. Or if you're like, I want to have an epic sweep and everyone's screwing it with everyone, you can Mm -hmm. drag in a lot more factors up to your comfort level
0: there's there's um yeah yeah no that 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 is uh extremely true so um
1: but okay tears
0: yeah tears um so there's this whole thing about position scale and effect uh which is this is also one of the weaknesses of the is that kind of ambiguous about like how much but one of the ways it is concrete is that um there are faction tiers and your gang from one to five, one is very small. Your gang starts at one and you can level up your gang by cr- increasing their tier. Uh, and then there's tier five, which would be like the blue coats, which are the cops, you know, um, and they're tier five and uh, uh, they're very powerful and, you know, influential and, um, they're
1: bastards.
0: Mm-hmm. And so there's this whole thing of like, If you're fighting, if you're trying to fight, go against something that's higher tier, it's much more difficult, more likely to be a risky or desperate position. Conversely, if you're fighting a smaller faction, it's much more easier. And there's some times where, like, if you're fighting a group of people, well, they're just automatically a higher tier because you're a single person. In fact, uh, the heavy class, uh, I forgot what it's called, but the the big muscly. uh, Yeah, the cutter they have a special ability that lets them fight as though they're a tier two group or they're, they're, they're able to fight a tier two group of enemies by themselves on equal footing. Is that Uh,
1: not to be trifled with? Yeah, because that's, I'm like, Oh, what a lovely callback to apocalypse world, which had not to be fucked with.
0: And there is in fact an NPC in the game that says, Oh, they can fight uh, enemies as though they are a tier tier three faction by themselves. Meaning they're a really dangerous foe, uh, and they can just wipe out an entire contingent of the city of the blue coats by themselves. Um, so the the tier gives you a lot of control in terms of like, is this you know, you can't fight city hall versus like, oh, uh, is this like you, you know the you can, the,
1: however, fight the guy with the soup cart down at the end of the block.
0: Yeah. Or the bad gang, the bad, you know, the, the antagonist gang and the warriors, which is just a couple of dudes with knives and one pistol. So like, yeah, that, that's like a tier one faction, but yeah. Um,
1: Scary pop bottles.
0: mm Hmm. So that gives you, uh, in terms of actual fact, that was very useful in, in terms of uh, uh, figuring um, what players could and could not do. Uh, It was very elegant, I thought. So um, yeah. Mm hmm. Okay.
1: All right. So is there anything we haven't covered about Blades in the Dark? Um, I mean, is what...
0: I think we also covered why people play it that way through that as well. So I think, yeah, we covered it all.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the theory I've got is that the people who are going to like Blades in the Dark are people who are comfortable pulling stuff, are are comfortable with a high degree of spontaneity, Mm -hmm. don't want to do a ton of prep work beforehand are, ag- are are willing to be agile and adapt to the wildness their players throw at them and who are comfortable with, you know, okay, maybe I can just make the mechanics do this.
0: Mm-hmm. I would agree with that fair to say.
1: Yeah, that's I would, I would
0: definitely agree with all that. Um, and I can yeah.
1: see why this game is popular because that is maybe a segment of gaming. That's a little underserved. If you are not a giant nerdy English major who has an unpublished novel in his desk, you're not used to the idea of extensive plotting and all this pre-planning and this production of inventive material. But maybe you still want a game. And so mm-hmm. one solution to still wanting a game is, oh, I'm going to play D&D, which everyone knows about going to buy a dungeon which tells which has a literal physical route that people follow through the plot the plot is unified in time the plot is unified in space you know they start out at dawn at the first room and by noon they've gotten five rooms in and by midnight they're at the the end boss battle and that is one way to do gaming if you are not someone who is super mega uh, inventive or Mm -hmm. who has the time to prepare everything.
2: And I think, if I can jump in, I think the time factor is enormously important there because, you know, it's young people, uh, an awful lot of people get into role-playing when they're at at college or at high school or something, and they have a lot of free time. As we get older, more and more commitments, less and less time, we still love... I would love to do an epic campaign and to write up that stuff. I don't have the time anymore. Yeah. Um, a game that essentially does that for me, Mana from Heaven.
1: Mm-hmm. And that is what Blades is positioning itself as, is I can... You know, you don't have to do hours of prep work. You can just roll dice instead. And mm-hmm. you can let the fiction emerge from this clockwork engine of plot elements
0: mm-hmm. yeah um yeah it, it is it's also like a very good for doing heists because again the the lat not a- because it's just make it up as you go along uh, mechanics um really keeps the game focused and also making heists fun uh which mm-hmm. is uh quite a good change from doing um oh, let's just kill monsters for three hours. And, uh, but obviously I think the players need to have some sort of vocabulary in doing heists and some sort of imagination. Um, if you, if you just blanket, like, how would I rob a bank? If you've never (laughs) thought about, how would I theoretically rob this art museum? Um, then maybe it's not the game for you. But if you can think of three ways to rob an art museum, you know, just do it in Blades in the Dark and don't get on any lists, uh, from the other... (laughs)
2: Yeah, no, the players need an understanding of the genre. They need to understand not necessarily the setting, which I think emerges through play, um, because there's a lot of information there, and expecting anyone, even the GM, to understand all of that at the start of the play is is asking a lot. But that you do need to understand how that the heist caper, the genre caper, the gang uh, movie or TV series works in order to... Understand the vernacular and understand how the fiction is going to unfold and what is expected of you, not yeah, just yeah. in the in the minute to minute stuff, but structurally as well. Yeah. Is this
1: Breaking Bad meets Lord of the Rings? It's um, more Breaking Bad. Meets I mean, it Shadow could be. Bone.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could be. <laughs> uh, I kind of want to see uh, uh, now Breaking Bad and in the Dark. That would be pretty fun. Um, there it is. Make ghost cocaine. Um, <laughs> or gri- ghost cocaine. F- yeah, <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, I think uh, if you haven't gotten a picture of Blades in the Dark from this, I, I don't know what will. Uh, you can check out <laughs> The Blind Eyes, or Blades in the Dark campaign, on our PBR actual play. Um, but yeah, we will put out a poll um, soon. And of course... Certainly by the time you've listened to this, the poll's probably already closed. <laughs> so we'll have yep. a Kickstarter announcement but what that uh episode topic will be. But we also have another episode uh coming up. And um yeah. Uh yep. so that that's it for uh Greg. Is there anything you wanna mention before we go? Uh no, uh,
1: not really. Uh, okay, I've done no. my self promotion, but thank you. <laughs> I I really appreciate you throwing that pitch right in the strike zone.
2: Yep. Uh James, anything? uh i'm good also very tired
0: all right well thanks uh for listening over
2: there but
1: yes thank you for listening
0: all right we will talk to you later bye all right this episode of leto narrative dissidence was made possible by backers like michael pardue and mark green thank you